Hi, I'm Miguel Garcia, creator and host of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. We talk just sports too. Subscribe and listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast on Amazon Music, Deezer, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Sports as a Weapon and on Instagram and Facebook at Sports as a Weapon Podcast. Or visit our website at www.sportsasaweapon.com. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, and you are listening to the Sports as a Weapon Podcast. We came here to build the new Chicago movement. That's what we came here for. We came here to build the new Chicago movement. That's what we came here for. Are you a Qatar fan? Yes. And what is the... From which uh, TV you are? We're from Israel. So... Excuse me, sir, can I give you a few words before the game? Ah, marhaba. Ahla, shu akbara. Alhamdulillah. Inta min Lubnan. Eh. Ana min Israel, ya akhi. Inta min Israel. Inta wasilit la'am. Inta shujayim. Inta wujit la'am. Allah, Palestine. Ma fi Israel. It's Miguel Garcia, and welcome to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano Chicana sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. And don't worry, we talk about just sports too. Again, Sports as a Weapon is part of the Anticonquista Media Collective Network. Anticonquista is an anti imperialist media collective. Our content is produced by and for the Latin American and Caribbean diaspora. We are dedicated to exposing and fighting the capitalist imperialist system, the root cause of our displacement. Subscribe to the Anticonquista Patreon at Patreon backslash Anticonquista and follow Anticonquista on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. I think there's also a TikTok now, so maybe we'll start using that as well. And then you can follow, listen, subscribe to this podcast, Sports as a Weapon podcast on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You could also follow Sports as a Weapon on Twitter, at Sports as a Weapon, and on Facebook and Instagram, at Sports as a Weapon Podcast. So today we're going to continue our World Cup discussion for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome this guest. Uh, he was at the World Cup, so kind of have a report back kind of episode. Welcome Adnan Hussein. He is one of the co-hosts of the Guerrilla History Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. He is a historian and director of the School of Religion at Queen's University. Welcome to the podcast, Adnan. Thank you. Well, thank you, Miguel, for having me on. This is really a thrill. I love your podcast. I love the issues of sports as a sports fan and sports watcher who's also committed to radical politics. So bringing the two together, what could be more beautiful? It's uh, exciting to be on with you. Yeah, Adnan, and if you want, you could uh, plug in your podcast and anything else about yourself real quick before we get going? Well, sure. I'm, I'm a historian, as you mentioned. I actually happen to work on um, you know pre-modern medieval history on Muslim-Christian-Jewish interactions in the Middle Ages in the medieval Mediterranean world. So a lot of the work that I do about contemporary politics is really just from love of engagement with these issues and being committed to, you know, solidarity and social justice struggles. You know, my work surprisingly relates to issues, I think, um, of racism and the roots of Islamophobia and uh, anti-Semitism and racism and colonialism and forms of settler colonialism. But I just go into deep roots of it. So that's why I like to talk about more contemporary issues as well, to try and make those connections more clear uh, in my own work and in thinking. And so I do have a podcast with uh, two other co-hosts called Guerrilla History that you mentioned that really is meant for the activist global left, how history can be a resource in our contemporary struggles against capitalism, imperialism, and for justice and equality. And I also have another podcast that's about the Middle East, Islamic world, Muslim diasporic um, issues, culture, called The Majlis, M-A-J-L-I-S, and that's available on all the usual platforms. Uh, do make sure not to confuse it with the Radio Free Central Asia CIA-sponsored uh, <laughs> uh, The Majlis. Uh, it has the same name, but it's very different. Look for the one that's um, hosted by me and sponsored by the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. And um, I post about those episodes uh, on Twitter at Adnan A. Hussein, H-U-S-A-I-N. So you can find me there. Awesome. And then I'll, I'll include most of this information on our podcast notes when this episode comes out. So check out his podcast, both of them. So check them out. That'll be great. Um, so let's get to it. Adnan, um, you were at the World Cup. So how was your experience while attending the World Cup in Qatar? How was the atmosphere? Um, how many matches did you attend? Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to attend four matches. Originally went into the lottery and got three matches and decided to try and go a little bit early and see if I could pick up some matches and also do a little bit of, uh, you know, visiting, you know, sites in Qatar and get a sense of what the country was like. I had never visited Qatar, though I have been to the Gulf. I've been to the UAE. Abu Dhabi before, but it's not, although I study the Middle East, uh, it's not a part of the Middle East that I have really connected with in the past. It's really kind of very different from the rest of the Middle East, uh, these small Gulf states. And so I was a little curious. We went early and I did manage to pick up an extra ticket for the Canada-Croatia disaster, uh, where Canada, which is where I'm located, you know, was defeated 4-1. And that was uh, dispiriting because it 
basically eliminated uh, Canada from the possibility of going on and getting out of the group stages. So Canada was one of the very few countries that actually was eliminated after the second round of group games. But I did go to the third group game um, against Morocco, also managed to catch Tunisia versus France, which is a very exciting game. And then Ghana-Uruguay, which was a kind of grudge match repeat from the 2010 World Cup. Maybe some people in Latin America remember Uruguay, Luis Suarez's handball that kept Ghana from being the first uh, actually African team to go that far, you know, deeper beyond the round of 16 and quarter. It was a quarterfinal match, I believe. So it kept uh, Ghana actually from going and being the first African team to make it to the semifinals, which Morocco managed to do this in this tournament. So those were four pretty exciting uh, matches. The whole experience um, was really, I mean, amazingly fun and exciting. I think partly because it was such a unique atmosphere. Because uh, unlike really any other previous and perhaps any future World Cup we'll have to see, it was located in such a small space, which is, of course, you know, part of the problems of uh, being able to build seven stadiums in a rapid uh, period of time to host it in such a small country, essentially in one kind of mid-sized city uh, region or area of Doha, the capital city of Qatar. But what it did have the effect of was really creating this kind of intense festival atmosphere where you met and encountered the fans from all the teams because everybody was in the same vicinity as opposed to the upcoming World Cup that'll be hosted, you know, in Mexico, U.S. and Canada or you know, even the Russia World Cup, where, you know, it's a big country. And even if it's, you know, only in one kind of the Western part of the country, it's still you're isolated in different cities. Um, this was all in one place. And so I met people from absolutely everywhere, all the different teams that created a really intense kind of tournament atmosphere. It had also strangely the effect because it's a small place, a small mid-sized city and millions of people basically descending, you know, certainly at least at, the, at, at any given time, hundreds of thousands of fans in the group stages, kind of creating its own atmosphere that was really apart from Qatar and Qatari society in a kind of meaningful way. You're sort of in these stadiums and going on the metro and from the sort of fan housing complexes by buses. And, and so you're thrown together with the other fans, but you don't always, unless you make an effort to do so, really get to see much of Qatar as a country itself. So it was kind of a very intense and unique atmosphere that was quite interesting. And as I said, you really, you know, got to meet people from everywhere. And that that was very fun. How was uh, the housing whole situation? Because, you know, over here in the West, they're talking. That was one of the things they like to talk about. Oh, how are they going to feel? You know, they just want to critique as well. But Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, I was initially worried whether I would find housing, and it certainly was extremely expensive if you went through regular hotels in the downtown area or Airbnbs. I thought maybe you'd find a deal, like, you know, go look for an air. It was incredibly expensive, outrageously so. Actually, the most affordable, it wasn't cheap, but it was like relatively reasonable, were some of these more suburban fan villages that they sort of threw up uh, with like rapid construction where I was staying was this place kind of in the, a southern suburb of Doha. 
you know, not in the center, really, although there were two stadiums nearby. It was basically between Athumama Stadium and Al Janoub Stadium in the outskirts of Doha. And this was like just a kind of, it was like, um, I don't know, like maybe being in a Las Vegas, like suburban development. It was just like rapid condo construction in the middle of the desert. And this complex had clusters of buildings, uh, identical looking buildings, five story high buildings, about 15 or 20 around a kind of central square that had, uh, you know, maybe one shop, a uh, a little park. Some of them had a mosque. Others had like a small grocery store and a restaurant. And so there were probably about 15 or so of these clusters, A through like K or L, of 20 buildings kind of arranged in this way. So you're talking about hundreds of identical looking, um, you know, five-story buildings just built to house, you know, fans from all over the world that clearly had been built very rapidly in a kind of uninhabited suburban part outside the main city core and you would take buses from there that would come through there were sort of free buses that would bring you from this fan village to either the metro or to a substation where they would send buses to the different stadiums that were all about 30 minutes well some of them as i said were quite close to where we were but others in other parts of the city and so this was kind of where the more moderately priced fan could find something. And they were very nice and clean, new. One wondered what in the world is going to happen to these places after the yeah. World Cup's over, you know. But it's clear that they invested an awful lot into building this kind of housing. So it was possible to find housing if you you know went through the system and the portal what I liked about it was, at least during the group stages, when all the fan communities were still there because nobody mm-hmm. had been eliminated. And in fact, actually, oftentimes the third group games are, uh, you know, many of them are dead rubbers because teams have already been eliminated. Very few teams were actually eliminated in this group state. Unfortunately, Canada was one of them, So, but I still enjoyed the whole experience. But it meant that fans stayed, you know, were there for that full period because their teams were still vying for qualification to the knockout rounds and so it just meant that there was just a really festival atmosphere every time you went out to the bus stop you saw portuguese and argentinians and brazilians and you know uh maybe you didn't see too many saudis because they could just drive in you know they were nearby but you saw you know moroccans and you know ghanaians and it, it was that was the really wonderful part of it. And I don't know if that'll be reproduced when it goes back to the format where, you know, matches are being held in separate cities far apart from one another. But that was really a a superb part of it because you just talked football with people from, you know, everywhere about their team, about their chances. What did did you watch the game last night of the other teams? And it also meant that a lot of people went to games that weren't their national team's game because you're there in Qatar and it's, you know, possible to go to a, you know, uh, another match. It's all in the same, you know, basic area. And, and I think a lot of people did. I met, for example, Japanese fans who, you know, came to see the Canada Morocco game. You know, they were going to play the next night, um, you know, against Spain, you know, to see if they could qualify. But so they were going to other matches. And I think you had a lot of this kind of mixing taking place, which was quite exciting. 
That sounds pretty cool. Like that was going to be one of my questions is like what team nation was the most well represented represented mm-hmm. by its fans. Kind of sounds like it was a good mix, but would you say there were certain ones that stood out for sure? Oh, uh, definitely. There were tons of fans from Middle East countries. I mean, okay. Saudi, huge. Makes sense because of where, where it's at. Yeah. So. And I think that that was interesting because maybe they wouldn't have gone, you know, as many of these people. It was a different kind of fan support that came. You know, if it had been in, in you know, Europe, maybe many of these people wouldn't have gone because of expense or they just didn't feel, you know, maybe the environment would have been good for them or, you know, many would have had visa issues. You know, I mean, this is a problem, you know, of uh, global south being able to travel Mm -hmm. even if you have the money i mean there's a lot of barriers so in some ways it had a kind of unique feel it definitely of course morocco tunisia iran saudi had lots of fans there and you'd sense it in the stadiums. and i think it made a real difference to some of the results i mean one of the big surprising results in the first round of games was of course uh, saudi defeating eventual winners argentina i mean yeah it was the first game (laughs) That was the very first game. And like there were so many Saudi fans there. And in the subsequent days, they were just all over the city because they were so excited and looking forward to possibly qualifying. They didn't in the end, but it made for a really good atmosphere. I think Ghana fans were absolutely wonderful. I mean, going to the Ghana-Uruguay match, I was on the Metro two hours before (laughs) the match started. And there were tons of Ghana fans in circles playing music and chanting for hours ahead. Of They had wonderful songs they were singing in support of their team. I don't know if their numbers were huge uh, all the way throughout the, the, the tournament, through the group stages, but definitely their presence was joyous, really, I mean, before the matches. There weren't so many Europeans, I thought, like especially Northern European fans. I didn't notice them as frequently. Among the European fans, I did see more from, say, Portugal. Uh, Croatians were were heavily present, and this is just in the group stages, but they they obviously have uh, a great team and, you know, are used to supporting them deep into, you know, uh, deep into the, the final stages of the World Cup. And so they were there. I met one Croatian gentleman who said uh, that he's gone to nine major tournaments following Croatia, you know, I mean, basically used to go to the World Cup back when it was Yugoslavia and a kind of combined team. Mm -hmm. Uh, But subsequently, he's also been to Euros and World Cups uh, around the world. So there are some very dedicated uh, fans. But I would say of the Latin American fans, I came across a lot of Argentinians. Um, Ecuadorans, I was surprised by how many Ecuadorans were there. Uh, but I would say, you know, Brazil and, and Argentina, obviously, you know, would be quite a lot. I didn't meet as many Brazil fans. And also, sometimes you don't know if people are Brazil fans from Brazil or they're just, you know, those who love Brazil yeah. because they're a, a Global South team. And I noticed that, that among the workers, you know, uh, South, lots of South Asian workers, you know, of course, you know, we haven't even talked about that aspect of Qatar. You know, the majority of the population are foreign workers, you know, 75% mm-hmm. of the population from different parts of the world, Arabs, South Asians, Philippines, you know, their presence, they're everywhere because they're doing all of the support services for everything that's taking place, whether it's on the metro, driving the buses, you know, 
everywhere. And when there was a Brazil match, if you you're watching outside the stadium in various spaces on public screens, there would be huge Brazil support. But I think they were, I mean, I would hear all these South, uh, South Asian languages of the excited fans. So there is a way in which the Brazil support was a global South kind of support. And because there's so many people, um, you know, um, who identify with them, you know, in the working community of uh, migrant workers there in, in Qatar, they always had a strong presence for their matches. And I think it was actually kind of devastating for a lot of people that they went out so early and that we, you know, to Croatia and that we didn't get a kind of classic Argentina Brazil matchup, you know, mm-hmm. in the semifinals, which would have been pretty epic. Yeah, that, that is interesting how you say, you know, Brazil might be like, the team represented by people that aren't even Brazilian just because, you know, that they're, they're kind of like the uh, go off U.S. sports, like they're like the Yankees or the Lakers when it comes. But with the national team, like people will just like because I know people growing up around here in the U.S. I'm from California, like people are usually U.S. or Mexico fans. But I know, you know, friends that were like, you know, they'd be wearing Brazilian jerseys because, you know, mm-hmm. they like support Brazil because of the player or whoever. Yes. Um, yes. So it's interesting seeing that. Even there, like, you know, because I've, I've seen it over here, but. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think on some level, what it is, is an identification at some part of your life with the uh, success of, of Brazil. They are the most successful World mm-hmm. Cup uh, team. They have fantastic players who are global superstars. And if you are, you know, a migrant worker, Working 12, 14 hours, uh, six, seven days uh, a week. I mean, what do you have to look forward to? You know, I mean, you gain some sense of, you know, enjoyment and dignity by identifying with a great, glamorous team. I mean, you can support them and feel great about their victories. And I know I felt that in the culture there that Brazil had a lot of support. You know, from, you know, from people in that kind of social, uh, social class and for those kinds of reasons, I think, which was, which was quite interesting. And I think it was pretty devastating for a lot of people in Qatar who were hoping to see, you know, Brazil go, go further. I remember watching the Brazil match. Uh, I guess it was their third group game, uh, match. Maybe it was against Switzerland and it really went down to, you know, a pretty late goal scored by an unlikely central, de- you know, central defensive midfielder, you know, uh, to actually go one nil and, and beat Switzerland. And the crowd just went absolutely ballistic when that, when he's, you know, when they, when Brazil scored that, that winner. And I don't think there were that many actual Brazilians. It was all this kind of identification with Brazil as sort of the heroes of global South uh, working class people who identify with their success and with, you know, with their fame, fame as a, as a great footballing nation with a long history and culture. That's awesome. So also, uh, were there any challenges while you were attending the World Cup in Qatar that, you know, being there as a fan watching the matches just, and then also some of the misconceptions people might have in the West about Qatar that maybe you could talk about if there was any? Well, to be honest, I think it actually was pretty well organized. I think the Qataris were actually desperate to or make sure that, you know, it went off without too many problems. I mean, security was very serious. Um, I read somewhere that, you know, 
they even had like NATO security specialists, you know, like, like they, they, they went deep into like the sort of deep sort of institutional security. And, okay. uh, so they were trying to make sure everything went well and they put a lot of resources into the infrastructure. I mean, they built this metro system basically to service, uh, you know, the influx of people. Uh, which I think will be a benefit, broadly speaking, for, you know, the working migrant workers, because they have not had, I think, a very good transportation infrastructure, just relying on buses and, uh, and so on. So that's going to be a positive okay. benefit. But I think they invested so much to make sure that people could get to the matches on time that they, you know, you know, could, could move about and, and so on. And they, you know, it was a lot of kind of crowd control sort of devices used to make sure that that you never had these um kind of you know overcrowding situations going into the transport and in and out of the stadiums and so on so i think they you know there weren't those kinds of challenges i think in terms of just you know qatar i don't think it was as i said i didn't think a lot of europeans actually made it out compared to you know the numbers i would expect at a different world cup in a different venue I think, you know, there was a lot of negative views of Qatar and Qatari society. There are a lot of, you know, Orientalist and Islamophobic ideas that, you know, Western media portrays and circulates. And that's been going on for a long time, you could say, since colonial times and 18th, 19th centuries. But even, of course, more recently with the global war on terror, there's just, you know, a kind of sense of the alienness, foreignness, hostility, inhospitality of you know, uh, the Arab or Muslim world and that it's dangerous to be there. And uh, I think those are, you know, maybe somewhat difficult to overcome. Of course, the Gulf is very different, you know, I mean, from other parts of the Middle East. I mean, you know, these places are kind of very artificially built spaces that are meant to sort of, you know, welcome the global cosmopolitan elite. That's like their purpose and that's their and orientation. there's a reason the Gulf states are, uh, you know, very aligned with like U.S. and stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. Oh. Exactly. They're all tied in very much. I mean, firstly, they're all creations of basically British colonial involvement mm-hmm. because of British India. This part of the Arab or Persian Gulf was, you know, very important for access to the, you know, Indian Ocean trade and as linking, you know, for different parts of the British Empire. And of course, the pearl, um, you know, diving of the area attracted, you know, the interests of the British. And so these UAE, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, Qatar, these are all, you know, minor kind of Gulf states, emirates, um, uh, monarchies that are really a function and a product of British patronage of certain tribal elite groups, you know, as part of their colonial endeavors in, in, in the Middle East. And the U.S. just really inherited that same kind of relationship as patrons, as security uh, supporters, as places where they could sell arms. So for the military, military bases. Yes, the military Keynesian economy that we have, which is basically the only thing we produce is weapons you know, that we sell. So we foment wars and sell the weapons and, you know, kind of have this whole security and apparatus. And they're definitely closely tied in into that. I think, you know, but one thing that I would say that I think is a kind of misconception and misunderstanding of Qataris, I mean, they are actually very hospitable. That is a really big part of Arab cultural ideals, you know, the value of generosity and hospitality to the guest or a stranger. And so I think some of the ways in which they were being portrayed as not being uh, hospitable and open to global fans was 
somewhat hurtful, perhaps, to people there. But by the same token, they, because of their policies towards LGBTQ, you know, people and rights, you know, created a real kind of uh, problem for themselves because um, it wasn't easy for them to explain that they would accommodate people, but yet that they uh, have this kind of antipathy towards public expression of like, you know, sexuality. And that's even for heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Like, it is really like kind of verboten to show public displays of affection, even heterosexual couples, much more so more challenging also for a kind of public identification. I think that was the key thing. So this whole controversy around the rainbow flag was about promoting in the public sphere a kind of identity based on sexuality. That was something that was very difficult for them to accommodate. Now, the ironic thing, and I've said this on other podcasts, and anybody who knows the Gulf knows that same-sex relations in, like, Gulf culture in Arab culture, long history of it, you know, very common, but it's closet. It's like not in the public space and the public sphere. And the way the culture deals with it is just very, very different. And it doesn't accommodate well to Western cultural norms. And I think that is what created the real sort of sense of conflict. It's not that it was going to be dangerous for gay and lesbian people to be in Qatar. What was going to be a problem was you know, expressing this as a public political kind of agenda. That is something that, you know, created, I think, the conflict. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of, like, Orientalism. And likewise, of course, we have a a conservative culture that's, you know, oriented towards public conservative sort of values, trying to be host for a global cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. tournament. I mean, this is never going to be you know, a smooth sort of relationship here. And on both sides, you have to wonder if like there were kind of more polemical uh, charged responses to this than a lot of mutual understanding and good faith dialogue. I think that's something that concerns me is that in the aftermath of this tournament and the way in which it's been covered, there was so much Western uh, media hostility to Qatar that I think it is kind of polarizing the situation. And, you know, I told you about like the individual fan experiences that you need people from just absolutely everywhere and you share some kind of common experience, you build some kind of common ground through the joy and love of football and you learn about other people and you forge those relationships. That's actually what these things should be about. But at the kind of discursive level at the media culture and the way in which that was polemicized and polarized, I think it's actually hardened a lot of views on both sides and reconfirmed people in their biases. And I think that's an an unfortunate potential outcome of this World Cup is that on a human level, it should have and could have and probably did in many ways for individual fans. But for those uh, kind of looking at it as an issue. I don't think that, you know, the media portrayal uh, that highlighted some of these differences and polarized even further around them has, uh, it's had a negative reaction, I think, also in the global south, in the Arab world. They just see the hypocrisy and the racism and the double standards of the West. And that can also be used to deflect from genuine critiques that, you know, are valid and based in 
exactly. real human rights and other issues. So I, I hope that as we unpack this and discuss it and why I'm so glad that you're talking about it is that, you know, we can have a more balanced analysis that gets at the truth of the real problems in a place like Qatar that is an example of the global labor, you know, exploitative system that we have in its perhaps its most obvious and congealed, you know, form, but that it is really not that out of bounds. I mean, you know, we know there's problems with, look at immigrants, you know, struggles in the United States and how much there is of migrant labor being exploited in the U.S. Even in Canada, they have agricultural areas that where they have special visas that give you no right to organize in terms of labor, no health care, no rights to immigrate or citizenship. It's like a kafala type system in Canada, but yet we, you know, only have this discourse that Qatar is somehow unworthy of having the World Cup because of the abusive labor regime. It is indeed an abusive labor regime. It has its roots in the British uh, colonial system. They're the ones who created the Kafala labor exactly. system. You know, uh, <laughs> it has its origins part- from Western European, like that's right, you know, British colonialism. <laughs> so, I mean, you get it exactly. I mean, look, like it's like. This capitalist exploitation is taking place everywhere. It's a feature of the system to exploit labor, to move people around for the benefit of capital. And it's a global system. And of course, this is one note of it that is particularly obvious in its exploitative and abusive form. But we shouldn't let that occlude us from a larger analysis that this is essentially, you know, the whole way in which the labor system under capitalism is working in lots of places, in fact, every place around the world. Exactly. Good. That was a really good uh, breakdown of what I, what I was trying to get to with this question. And then did you see, did you actually, because over here in the, you know, watching it on TV, a lot of talk, you know, oh, there's people protesting, like, you know, the Grant Wall passed away mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people already started making theories when he passed away. Oh, the Qataris might have killed him because he wore a rainbow shirt and then he got denied into the stadium like that was like the first one of the first matches yeah in the, in the group stage that was just going everywhere on twitter and it was like you don't even know what happened like and then eventually mm. his wife said like you know just something happened he just passed away unfortunately it was nothing mm-hmm. like that oh yeah it's some congenital me. condition yeah it was just a health suffering. issue that he didn't know yeah. about like right but i that was one of the things i thought about i'm like because over here, you just hear all oh, people are going to protest or they can't protest. All this, they're also talking about what's happening in Iran. And then, even they were, mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. even outrage about the whole reversal of selling alcohol. Yes. Like, that yeah. was, that was right before, you know, the night before the game, the first game or that morning, like when they got announced that they weren't going to do that. But like, there was such an outrage over here. Well, just watching the media, like the news and reading everything over here in the West. So that was interesting. Did you, yeah, you know, see any of that stuff? Like people talking about it, any people actually protesting? I, these things? You know, I didn't end up seeing much of these kind of flashpoints of protest. Mm-hmm. I mean, around these, I mean, people who were there were principally interested in the football and the experience and watching the matches, supporting their team and so on and doing maybe a bit of tourism and stuff. So I didn't really notice too much. I mean, I followed the story about the Iranian players, you know, who are mm-hmm. remarkable and courageous people 
to, um, you know, continue under, you know, difficult circumstances and a lot of political pressures coming from all sides, you know, and this is one thing that I think was a little bit unfair. And I remember Jurgen Klopp, you know, was asked about it before the start of the World Cup. And he said, hey, listen, you know, you know, you had 10 years to sort of deal with this question. If you have these issues, it's the politicians, it's the people who govern the game, it's FIFA, it's, you know, people should have done something. Now, suddenly you want to put it all on the athletes to have a stance and to be politicized. And I don't know what you think. Of course, we sometimes love these uh, figures like Muhammad Ali or the, you know, Black Power salute in the 68 Mexico, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, a, a um, you know, athlete is actually willing to take a stand, you know, for their deep held principles. I have always admired that. However, the way this was all sort of coordinated, it felt like it was the rest of society that was putting the pressure on these athletes to do the political work that they themselves had failed to do and had decided to accentuate now that there was global attention on Qatar as almost counter sports washing, right? Okay, Qatar obviously, you know, corruptly managed to, you know, get the World Cup from FIFA in order to project a certain image and to burnish its uh, status on the world stage, what we think of as, you know, classic sports washing. And, but in, in point of fact, what ended up happening in some ways is that it received a more negative press. As a result of these kinds of critical views, some based in absolute, you know, valid concerns about workers' rights and human rights and LGBTQ rights, but conducted in a way that, you know, was clearly a double standard that they've never applied to even to Russia, the Russian World Cup. I mean, you know, there's plenty of evidence that there's been suppression of, you know, gay rights and LGBTQ rights in Russia. You know, but nobody said anything about it. And will there be discussion when we have the World Cup here in the United States, Canada exactly. and Mexico about don't say gay in Florida? I know Miami is going to be, you know, hosting games. I mean, are they going to talk about in Texas that somebody can't a woman can't have, you know, get a abortion because they don't have rights over their own body? I mean, is this going to be in the global media talking about that? I, I really doubt it, you know. That's what you all pointed out in your World Cup episode for Guerrilla History. And what I did with my previous episode um, is, yeah, that's kind of what I want to, I like to point out on these is like, are they going to do this in 2026? I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, no. I think they should. I mean, I would they be should, yeah. delighted <laughs> if somebody like, I'm sure said, people hey. like maybe leftists, like, you know, people like us are actually involved in these, you know, activism and all this other stuff might do it. But like, is the media going to point that out? Like they were, focus with Qatar and the issues there, you know, it's Western media. Like, I doubt they're going to do it. Like, but. Uh, Very unlikely. Very <laughs> unlikely. And I mean, I think that undermines, you know, the possibility for good faith dialogue and genuine, you know, improvement because people on the other side of these targeted critiques feel, recognize the double standards, the hypocrisy, and then you know, aren't going to listen. And I feel like that's something that has happened very much with this is that uh, a lot of the rest of the world has sort of had it with the self-righteousness and, you know, of Western elites and Western media um, thinking that there's only one way to live, to work, to do things, and that, you know, uh, people from the global South don't deserve to have, you know, I think there really was a kind of resentment in a sense. Now, who should feel sympathetic with these Qatari elites. Like, look, this is what has happened is that you've somehow managed to have sympathy for 
you know, this corrupt, monarchical, oppressive, like, you know, uh, elites, um, because of the double standards and the hypocrisy and the bad faith critiques. I mean, I know that many people feel these genuinely. I feel them genuinely. You know, I, I you know, I, I believe in labor, you know, activism. I believe the end of capitalism, no more exploitation. I believe everybody should be free to be who they are, you know, to express themselves, you know, whoever they want to love, right? Like we believe in these things. However, what we don't believe in is these kind of hypocritical double standards that are used to, you know, maintain Western dominance and privilege culturally, economically, geopolitically, which is what it seems these kinds of narratives are uh, attempting to do. And one thing that was so refreshing was uh, how the cause of Palestine was mainstreamed in public consciousness through this World Cup, which is a unique feature of any kind of major global event. I've never seen any, you know, major media or entertainment or sporting event, you know, that the world was watching where you could freely express solidarity with Palestinians, you know, in you know, against uh, their oppression, denial of their human rights, their suffering under occupation. This was a very refreshing kind of feature of having this in the Middle East. Uh, I think that is a, a dimension that needs to be acknowledged. And it was a very beautiful thing to see, you know, in the crowds, Palestinian flags, scarves, kafias, chants. And when you went outside of stadiums, people were hit carrying flags and you just would start up a chant of a free Palestine. Everybody would start joining and you had a sense of collective commitment to solidarity with Palestine that I have never seen in a mass way in a kind of public global sort of sporting event or cultural event. And that would never happen if it wasn't in the Middle East. So I have to say from at least that perspective, as somebody said on Twitter, whatever happens within Qatar 2022, Palestine has won the World Cup. I mean, you would have thought Palestine was one of the nations competing, the support that it had. You know, of course, FIFA doesn't recognize Palestine as a country. They can't field the team. They're not part of, you know, the recognized, you know, FIFA uh, nations. Uh, but there was great sympathy and support for Palestine, which was, as I said, really a remarkable, unique and beautiful thing. Okay, so I figured, because even over here watching it and, you know, on TV, it was very obvious, you know, because you'd see Palestinian flags in the stadium. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. um, when Morocco scored that goal, yes, that head, that header, that amazing header where he jumped really high. Yes, um, you see a Palestinian flag in the back, and then I remember seeing the replays. Um, I was watch, I think for that match because I would watch either Fox or sometimes I'd watch Telemundo. Mm -hmm. I know Spanish, I'm Mexican, and so like sometimes I'd watch that one. But I tried to watch both kind of to see how the coverage was. Right. And I remember watching that match on Fox and like during the replays, you could tell like the cameraman's trying to avoid yeah. some of the Palestinian flags, but it's kind of too, it's too hard because it was everywhere. Yes. Um, but it's, I guess, great to see or hear from you that was being there that, you know, it was a very real thing where there was so much mass support because even, you know, just following on Twitter and social media, mm -hmm. I'd see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd, I'd even see, I saw a video of, like, even British fans chanting. Yes. Like, see Palestine that were, like, getting interviewed. And then you'd, you'd see all the stuff about Israeli media getting, like, shunned by everyone yes. whenever they knew it was Israeli media. Like That was pretty have, funny, yeah. Did you ever run into one of that? Did you see it? You know, 
I, I didn't run stuff. into any Israeli media crews uh, doing those interviews. I mean, I wonder if maybe after the first uh, week, uh, I came in for the sort of end of the second round and third round okay. of group matches, that maybe the first week, 10 days, they may have sort of decided this wasn't going anywhere. And, and I think it's very interesting, though, that aspect of it. So say, for example, the Moroccan players taking a group photo with a huge Palestinian mm-hmm. flag after that victory, the, the same one that you're mentioning, you know, on this series, you know, great header uh, to win that match. Afterwards, they took this photo where they're with a big Palestinian flag. Now, there have been complaints, you know, that uh, against them and filing with FIFA that they shouldn't have been allowed, they should be sanctioned and so on. Unbelievable. But, you know, that is actually an act of dissent. You know, of political dissent because Morocco's government, and this helps us also think that we should think about the difference and disaggregate and distinguish a government uh, as a representation of a nation and the people or the players who are representing Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. nation on the pitch. These are separate things. And those players, they care and love, you know, Palestine and wanted to express their solidarity. Their government has normalized relations with, you know, with Israel, right? So this is an act of defiance in some ways that should be celebrated as courageous, you know, against their government's policy. I mean, certainly their government doesn't want the, the players representing Morocco highlighting the cause of Palestine and exposing, you know, the fact that, you know, their government has normalized with Israel, you know. So that should be appreciated that this is, the people's sentiment in the region. And so a lot of the Israeli camera crews, when they met, um, you know, people from, you know, Arab Emirates or, you know, uh, Bahrain or uh, Jordan or, you know, any of these countries that have uh, peace agreements with and have normalized their relations with Israel, these people rejecting, um, you know, uh, an interview and not wanting to speak with them when they found that they're Israeli, the Israeli uh, kind of announcer or interviewer or reporter saying, but we have the Abraham Accords, we have a peace treaty, you know, they're mistaking the governments, corrupt governments, making undemocratic, corrupt governments throughout the Arab world, throughout the Muslim world, dictatorships or authoritarian governments, military dictatorships in many cases, or corrupt Gulf monarchies making agreements for geopolitical reasons and advantage for that privileged class or trade agreements because they want to continue to, you know, you know, make money and so on, that should not be mistaken for what the people really feel because they are not represented by their governments in these policies. And I think this was such a great opportunity at the World Cup, almost unique in this way on the global stage to be able to talk about these issues in a serious and nuanced way and to be able to distinguish between what the people of the region want, which is peace based on justice, not peace based on geopolitical or economic interests of their elites selling out their fellow, you know, brethren, their, you know, their brothers and sisters, uh, you know, in Palestine. Yeah. And I think that's very good distinction to make because even like when I, I had made a, a little meme graphic of that goal from Morocco, and then I put a little Fanon quote in there, but oh, I posted it. Yeah. I posted it on, on the, uh, Anti Conquista page and then also on my podcast page on Instagram. But most, you know, we got a lot of, 
you know, people liked it, but then there would be some comments from people who, you know, are supposed to be leftist, communists, maybe they're anarchists, I don't know, you know, leftists, and like, they were like, but what, but Morocco's government supports Israel, and, you know, the mm-hmm. whole West Saharan occupation yep. stuff, I'm like, nobody's supporting that, we're just, you know, these are the players, these are the people, exactly. like, even just fans are, they're supporting Palestine, it's like saying, oh, I live in the U.S., and, you know, I'm supporting all these anti-U.S. things that I, I do, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. critique the government. But then, well, but they do this, like, like the government actually represents me or I'm just like, like, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Like, yeah. So, I even, it wasn't that many comments, but some people pointed that. I'm like, oh, but what about them? Like, nobody is saying you support the Moroccan government. Government, support with right. Israel. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about these Palestinian, we're talking about Moroccan players supporting Palestinians and then, just Moroccans and other other people like just it just everyone started supporting Palestine at this World Cup. That's what made it so yeah. awesome. Like and then how you pointed out, uh, you know, you you've never seen this much public support like in a big global event mm-hmm. for Palestine, and it probably could only be somewhere in the Middle East because if this happened in the U.S., they'd be oh yeah, oh you know, there'd be there'd be cops everywhere doing you know even uh not even a big event, but I remember uh, maybe like five six years ago. I have an anthropology background. I have a master's in cultural anthropology. And so I remember being at the anth- the American Anthropological Conference. I presented a paper. This is like 2015. I think it was Denver. But part of that event, oh, we were going to do a, a BDS, like boycott Israel like thing, right? There was people there, anthropologists that are Israeli, that were trying to shut that down. Like, this is just an academic conference. But there's Israel, you know, there was Israel, probably, there probably was IDF people there. Like yeah, you never know. It, you know, yeah, we've right? learned we've learned that uh, the anthropologists and professional organizations and the psychologists, uh, you know, or the professional organizations have had a long history of collaboration with the CIA for interrogation mm-hmm. techniques, counterinsurgency among anthropologists. You know, like about how do you do your participant observer and. You know, like who's a perfect spy other than somebody who goes in and does an ethnography and reports on and gets to know who's who in the village and takes all the notes about Mm -hmm. who's related to whom. So, you know, knowledge is never neutral. And it, of course, in these professional bodies can be closely connected with the military and security apparatus. We have to always be vigilant, you know, and these are contested spaces. So I'm so glad that you were you know, raising that issue there, but I'm sure on the other side, you know, there is an investment in these forms of knowledge, you know, for, you know, their nefarious purposes. And then even, um, I remember doing a, supporting a Palestine protest when I was in grad school, I went to San Jose State, you know, there was a Palestinian um, activist group there on campus students. And so, you know, we were showing support with them, you know, protesting on campus and, you know, there was a, some Israeli pushback because there were some Israeli students and I, one of them was an IDF military, mm. per, like a student, but, you know, he's an IDF. They were there, like, this is just at yeah. a random campus, you know, San Jose State. Like, they were there ready to shut that down already. So, like, it's amazing. I'm glad you pointed that out at the World Cup. They couldn't, they couldn't shut down that, uh, Palestine yeah. support. And it, it, and it wouldn't happen. It was everywhere and it was yeah. so spontaneously you know, um, being expressed because it could be because it was in this in this space. And uh, just that was a very special and lovely part of the atmosphere. I mean, you know, just that, uh, you know, the Moroccan fans, for example, because we've been talking about Morocco, unbelievable support 
absolutely unbelievable support. You know, in that uh, third group game, you know, Canada-Morocco was a very important game for Morocco to be able to win the group, which was like really momentous for them to win or, you know, win that group. Uh, especially with, uh, in the end, you know, like two semifinalists came out of that group, Croatia and Morocco, yep. you know, so for them to win the group, big deal. So they were invested in that game. I was there, of course, you know, I was there with my son. He's, you know, like a young player and he was so excited that Canada qualified. And so we were there to follow, you know, Canada's qualification and uh, post-qualification in this World Cup. That game didn't mean a lot, you know, because we were already eliminated. But the atmosphere from the Moroccan fans from start to finish was unbelievable. Like, just so passionate. They filled the stadium. It was just a wall of sound, like, for 90 minutes. And it was a beautiful thing thing to see. And that's another thing that was really quite interesting and exciting. Morocco was really the story of this World Cup. Okay, yes, Argentina won. It's historic. Leo Messi, the final game, kind of, that becomes the narrative. But to be honest, up until that point, the big story was Morocco making these advances through the group stage, playing a kind of heroic, determined, exciting. It wasn't just defensive sitting back. It was a kind of solidarity of working together, playing with intensity, taking your opportunities to go on to attack as soon as you could get the ball, but otherwise working really hard in midfield and defense. It was a real expression of, a, you might say, a kind of, determined, you know, underdog kind of team composed of mostly players from the Moroccan diaspora in Europe who were born outside but still felt very closely connected to their Moroccan identity and Moroccan roots, developing that, exploring that, and expressing that kind of, you know, solidarity that they had because they are people who have grown up in the slums of Europe you know, in the banlieue and, you know, forged in like racism, anti-immigrant sentiment. I mean, they could have, some of them are really stars who could maybe have made it onto national teams in, in, in Europe, but they felt Moroccan and they have come together. And that was one component that I thought was very interesting of these diasporic players coming back and really fighting for Morocco and identifying with it, really something very special. And then the second part of their, what was so exciting and interesting and unique was, you know, a lot of these teams, they go into a kind of quarantine camp, you know, for the tournament, isolate, no family, no, nobody can come. We've got to just focus on, you know, the tournament and, and the players, you know, basically have to be walled off from any distraction. One thing so interesting about Morocco, they drew strength from having their families with them, you know, and celebrating with them and having them be part of their camp. It was just like a very natural thing for them to be surrounded by friends and family. And you could see they played in a certain kind of way with sort of determination, freedom, you know, confidence uh, that I thought was really interesting culturally as an expression of their footballing and national culture, despite the fact that they were from this diaspora mostly. And to see these wonderful scenes of, you know, honoring their, you know, mothers, you know, um, as well as as we were talking about Palestine, I mean, they gave a lot to this tournament, I think, to give it its unique flavor, 
one of the many things that will make this a very memorable World Cup are is the sort of Moroccan team's contribution, not just because they were an underdog, first African team, first like Arab league uh, team to make it that far, but also because they did it in a particular way and style that was really reflective of their unique values that contributed to the experience of the tournament, I think. Yeah, they did it their way. Um, yeah. Once Morocco kept going, I like a lot of, a lot of other people I saw, you know, we started to support Morocco, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause a global South team, even, even that France Tunisia match, even though I knew Tunisia probably wasn't going to make it, France already had made it by that time. When Tunisia beat France, that was, was like big. a big moment too. And you, you were at that game, right? So yeah, yeah, that was just a big thing. I thought about France, but not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that was, that had a great atmosphere too in that one. I mean, there was a very slight chance that Tunisia could qualify mm-hmm. and everything worked out that kept it kind of vital from a competitive standpoint. But I think the real energy there was just, can we defeat our former colonial, you know, master? I mean, I so much wish Morocco had defeated France and gone to the final. That would have been a great story, epic. Uh, But at least being there for for Tunisia, again, the atmosphere, unbelievable. There were, you know, probably 30,000 Tunisians in the stadium of 4045 and very few France fans the energy was so far much behind this. And it really, you're right, like this Fanonian kind of sense of anti-colonial resistance. I mean, that's been what was so exciting also about Morocco's run is that, you know, defeating Spain that has, yep. you know, colonized parts of Morocco, defeating Portugal that has colonized parts of Morocco further in the distant past. But um, they also have colonized Morocco and then facing France and, frankly, outplaying France. I think they outplayed Yeah, they, they could have won that match. They could have. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that 2-0 was, what, 2-0 France, I believe? So, But it was, it was a good game. They had their opportunities. There was some they maybe... There were some controversial calls, maybe not some fouls called. That could have been on Morocco's oh, side. Definitely, but, I felt right? that I felt they didn't get a lot of the benefit of the referees' decisions. And also at that point, I mean, they were exhausted. They had so many injuries. I mean, you know, in the third, fourth playoff, you know, um, that they played against Croatia, they didn't even have any center backs left. I mean, they'd gone through four center backs. They had a midfielder having to play in the defensive line, even against France. I mean. They made a mistake, really, it seems, playing Saiz at all. He desperately wanted to play. His hamstring was gone. He'd already had to leave injured the previous match. I don't know why he was starting. But, I mean, he was desperate to do whatever he could. But it meant that they played a three uh, center back, you know, kind of to protect Saiz. But he couldn't play more than about 10 minutes before. I mean, he wasn't able to run. And so they had to change their whole defensive setup and i'm sure if they played for at the back in their normal defensive line if they'd had a healthy you know uh center backs um you know maybe they wouldn't have given up that first early goal because that was actually the first time yeah, they were that was trailing. Like the turning point yeah. exactly that was the first time they were trailing in the entire world cup because they hadn't been conceding goals at all so yeah, yeah. so i also want to this was getting talked about a lot you know we both saw the final at home you already came yeah home to Canada by that time on Sunday. That match was amazing. Um, but do you believe it was the greatest World Cup final you've seen? I'm 37, so the first World Cup I remember is 94. So mm-hmm. from my lifetime, at least, it's probably the greatest I've seen, or at least up there. But what was your uh, thoughts on that? 
yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit older <laughs> in my early 50s, so I've seen a couple of, uh, of more World Cups. I would definitely say that it was sometimes these big like finals are not actually that great as no. games. It's more the spectacle and the fact that like whoever wins is, you know, the champion. That's what's at stake, but it doesn't always lead to the most exciting games. And this one was fantastic. I mean, the twists and turns were amazing. The only thing I would say is that I would have preferred more. It was great to have three goals on each side and go into, you know, uh, penalties with so many goals. I mean, I don't think there's been a final where so many goals have been scored. I would have loved for more of them to have been from open play than penalties because I always feel there's a little dicey, you know, there's always a little controversy around it. Yeah, I remember that first messy one. People were really, oh, that's not a foul. Like people were getting mad. (laughs) People were upset about, yeah, the Dembele foul on Di Maria. Yeah, it was a little soft. I mean, but then they got one back called in their favor that also could have been conceivably gone another way. So it, it turned out to, you know, be fair, but I think just the back and forth, I thought it was going to be a really boring final because Argentina came out and absolutely dominated. I mean, the first half yeah, it was, was all them. By the time there was, well, what, 10 minutes left and that's when uh, France came back? Like, I thought it was over. I'm like, Messi's getting his cup. There's only 10 that's minutes right. and then boom, Mbappe <laughs> did his <gold>. thing. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Suddenly, you know, the reversal, you know, I guess we saw that with Netherlands against Argentina, that they were down two goals. Argentina looked like they were cruising. Then they sat back a little bit too much. And that opened up the possibility for two quick goals by the Netherlands near the end that put it into extra time and ultimately penalties. So I guess we had kind of seen that pattern. But for a lot of times, the extra time, after the 90 minutes when it's tied and it goes to the two 15-minute extra time periods, a lot of times those are really cagey, not very interesting, and they're all just looking forward to you know, making sure they don't concede so that they can get to penalties. They don't want to make a mistake. This was like the best extra time I think I've ever seen. It was end-to-end. It became like a basketball game. You know, It was like from one end to the other, fast break after fast break. And we had that Martinez goals. save. Oh man, like that, like that was an incredible save. Yeah, an incredible that... save by Emilio Martinez. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely agree. I think it was probably the best World Cup final that people will remember. I think as a whole, this is one of the most exciting and memorable tournaments as a whole. And I, I think this is at you. every level, like the group stages. As I said, very few teams were eliminated and highly contested. Some excellent upsets. The knockouts were really interesting. Morocco being this big story, managing to make it past some favored European powers. And then, of course, the final to cap it all off, this amazing final uh, that had just absolutely every component that you would want. Drama, great players, the two, probably two of the best players in the world facing one another, goal after goal to like make it go back and forth. And then a penalty, you know, uh, you know, a penalty drama at the end. So really, you know, this tournament had so much. It had everything. I think is one of the best tournaments on the pitch. And then off the pitch, you know, despite all the controversies and all the issues that are very legitimate about it being held in Qatar under the conditions that it was, it's a very memorable one. Because these issues have been talked about, I think I'm just always going to remember. I've not, I've not been to other World Cups, but I think there's just so much that was going on with this World Cup to think about, to talk about from a sports perspective, from a politics perspective, that this has just been a very memorable uh, and interesting World Cup. 
I remember a lot of us, even me including, were like, ah, oh, it's in November. It's going to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> but it turned out pretty good. So yeah, I'll we'll be back to if, normal next time. But Yeah, it, it will. Um, one aspect of that in a, the preview that we did for Guerrilla History for the World Cup, I said, I wonder what's the state of play going to be because it's happening in the middle of the European mm-hmm. club season. Does this mean that a lot of the players will be in good form and maybe the quality of play will be better or will they be kind of tired? And also there's the issue that there's lots of injuries that happened in like October, early November, and those players were ruled out of the World Cup. So a lot of great players weren't able to participate. Yeah, like Mane for Senegal. Exactly. That's right. That was a big injury. That really was. And I think Senegal, maybe they might have been able to beat England if they'd had Mane, you know, I mean, they, they played very well. So that was one negative of having it in the middle of, of, you know, November, December. But I think on the whole, actually, the players were in sharp form because they had been playing. So maybe it benefited some aspects of the play. And in some other ways, it was it was um, negative because there were injuries that prevented um, some of the best players from being part of it. But it's certainly going to be memorable. Maybe it'll never go to the winter or late fall again. And that'll just be another unique feature of this one that we'll 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 look back on and compare to future World Cups. Uh, it also uh, got me excited to get back to the club Definitely. soccer. Like I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm like I got oh. even more. I got more pumped up. I'm like, oh, now it's gonna come back. Like we're gonna get back to club soccer. At yeah, least the uh, European ones. So I'm, it kind of like got me more excited now that the I'm Cup I'm a big Arsenal was, fan. So I I was my brother's an Arsenal fan. So. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I so well, he and I probably both were like, oh no, this is disrupting what has so far been yep. a really great season. Now who knows what we're going to be like when we come back? And of course, we've lost Gabriel Jesus, our you know major striker who got injured playing you know for Brazil, and uh, he's going to be out with a knee operation. So this is you know having a in effect, having it in the middle of the season like this is, is definitely, you know, disrupting not only Arsenal season, but many other of the top teams whose players may have gone deep in the tournament or are going to need rest. Um, how do you pick up your momentum? It's going to be very interesting to see the rest of this club season in, in, in Europe, but I am very much looking forward to it. Yeah. And then, so we're about to end this podcast. So I got one more uh, question topic for you. Um, this one's, a, I guess, a very complex one, but I, I saw some discussion about it on Twitter and uh, Facebook and other places. Um, I rooted for Argentina in the final. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't go for France because of the whole, you know, right. history of colonization and imperialism. But then other people made good arguments. You know, they were, they were going for France because of the African diaspora of the team because they're pretty much the whole team is full of black yeah. and African players. Yeah. Um, that's why they're really good. Uh, and so, some people thought, oh, that would be, if you're going to pick, if you had to pick between these two teams, they should go for France. But how, what do you think about this? Like, which team to go for? It doesn't, doesn't really matter, but well, I thought it was an interesting discussion. Yeah. yeah, I think there were arguments for either side. Obviously, you know, Argentina, Global South, Latin American team, people, although I've heard a lot of Latin Americans don't, South Americans, people in Conmebol, don't like Argentina. They yeah, I usually Brazil. don't go for Argentina. Like, I'm, you know, I root for Mexico, and we have our history right. when it comes to World Cup. Absolutely. So I usually don't go for Argentina. I am a Messi fan, but this instance, yeah. I was going yeah. for them. Um, 
But yeah, there is that whole thing too. There is that rivalry because I was talking with Chilean friends. I was like, oh, so maybe you're supporting Argentina out of the whole solidarity, you know, another Latin American. No way, you know, (laughs) we hate Argentina. So like there are different ways that you could you could think about it. But definitely they're a kind of, you know, global south team from Latin America. But I think there is some point to the position of the other people who mentioned that there are so many black and, you know, uh, people from the African diaspora and North African, you know, players mm-hmm. like Mbappe, for example. I can't remember, uh, his father's background, but his mother, I believe, is Algerian. His father is West African, maybe Cameroonian. I can't remember exactly which. So you're talking about people who are part of this diaspora. Now it's very interesting. The Moroccan players are also mostly, many of them, part of the, you know, diaspora in Europe, and they've come back and are representing their, you know, Moroccan uh, identity and country. What does one make of diasporic players who, you know, are French now, and they're playing in France for, you know, former, you know, colonial power? Many of their families are from former colonies of france and what does one you know feel or make of of that situation i guess the one thing i would say is that uh, we talked a little bit about fanon you know when he talks about the colonial context in that first chapter of wretched of the earth in concerning violence i mean he talks about the spatial differences of the city there is the colonial city and you know the france or the wide boulevard in the beginning of the Battle of Algiers, you know, you see the difference between in that film, wonderful film, you know, the new European city versus the Arab quarter, you know, the colonized uh, section. That is also reproduced in the first world. You know, like I think of the Black Panthers, for example, talking about applying Fanonian ideas of anti-colonial resistance to African-American struggle for liberation in the first world, because the ghetto is the colony, they said, because mm-hmm. the ghetto is the third world within the first world. And so there is some reason to think that, you know, all those players are coming from the Bunlius, the suburbs, which is actually it's different from like an American, uh, North American city where the city center was like where the ghetto was. And then, you know, uh, it's the suburbs that were where the wealthy white flight, you know, took place. The reverse is in France, where the city center, you know, is actually where the wealth, the prestige, the, you know, importance. And in these suburbs, they have the kind of big public housing projects and, you know, there's impoverishment and where they had like a series of, you know, anti-police brutality riots, like say a decade or two ago. I remember there were, I called it the intifada of the banlieue, you know, as the black and brown, you know, uh, Peoples living in impoverished and desperate circumstances who are locked out of labor, can't find work, have no social services, who were resisting, you know, police brutality. And that's where these players really principally come from. So one could say that they are from this oppressed post-colonial immigrant population that in some ways reflects the global south and labor migration and, you know, immigration in the post-colonial world, I can see some sympathy for identifying with that team. The problem is, however, is that, of course, the French far right, well, I guess what I, my question would be, what upsets the French far right more? France losing or France winning with that team? Like, if I could find out and answer <laughs> that question, then maybe I would figure out whether it's okay to root for France. 
It's like uh with even like the English team, like the England team, they have a lot of black players. They do. And we've already seen like I think it was the uh you know, the European championships mm-hmm. where England lost and you would you saw on social media like Saka and other black yeah. players were getting like racist comments from British white fans. That's right. Um, you know, so like if they won, they'd love them. They lose all oh, your black. You know, you're not that's British. Right. That's so right. that, that's kind of the thing I think about too. I'm like, how is that going to Yeah, now that know, they lost. I know that happens in France too. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know that anti blackness happens in France. So like that was something I thought about. I'm like, oh, if they lose, are they going to be like the British fans? Are they going to you know, attack the black players? Yep. Subject to abuse. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't watched, read any media reports to see. Me neither as much lately, at least for the France one. With yeah, because final. I know but that I it was the England. It was Kingsley Coman and uh, Chouamini who missed their penalties. Well, Chouamini, you know, missed mm-hmm. the goal, and Coman's was saved. So there's two black French players that you know, in just the same way, Saka and Rashford, and I forget who else, you know, missed the the, the other penalty. But they were all you know British black players, English black pay- players. Who missed those final penalties? And as you're pointing out, they were subject to terrible racist abuse. I mean, I'd like to see actually what has been the reaction in France to Chouamini and Coman, you know, missing their their penalties. Yeah. So thank you for uh, talking about this uh, topic because it's something that kind of popped up in my mind uh, right after this final happened and having this discussion with people on you know social media. So, because, you know, I, I had to go for Argentina as much as I don't mm-hmm. like to go for them. Yeah, I do like yeah. Messi, but usually I never pull for them. There was also just comments from people like, well, Argentina is a very white team, which they were. They've had a lot of very, uh, you know, white-looking Latino players. But Argentina isn't, like, all white. Like, there's indigenous people, you know, it just doesn't, I guess, get talked about in, when it comes to the team because the team, right. how the way they look as well. But I, I had to, I know as a Latino, I had to go for Argentina. Yeah. And go for understandable. understandable. Yeah. But it's like the same thing. Um, I know people that I don't cheer for a U.S. team, but I know people that do and I don't get mad that they do. It's sports. Right. Um, I always, I used, root, I, I'm sorry to say, uh, I do root against the U.S. team if it's anybody <laughs> from like the global South, Africa, Middle East, et cetera. And, I was desperate to try and get into uh, the U.S.-Iran match. Um, oh, man. Of course, I wasn't able to get a ticket on the day. I was, like, spending hours trying to online, trying to get tickets. And But I do remember watching in 1998 the U.S.-Iran. And even in a place as liberal uh, and left-wing as Berkeley, California, because I'm also originally from the Bay Area, uh, actually okay. South Bay, San Jose. My parents live in San Jose. Okay, um, yeah, that's where yeah. I went to grad school, so, so I lived in right. San Jose. I'm originally from SoCal, but oh, I've been okay, up in, Nor- I've been right. in Northern well, California. I've been in Nor- I've been living in Northern California for like ten years now. So yeah, okay, so then you know Berkeley. Then you know yeah. that Berkeley is like supposed to be the hotbed of like the left in in the Bay Area, and I remember watching that in a cafe uh, run by a Lebanese French guy, a kind of restaurant. We we're showing the World Cup. I was the only one who was cheering, and I had to sort of suppress it because people were getting upset when Iran won that match, the two-nil brilliant, you know, game and a historic, you know, kind of defeat for uh, the U.S. and meant so much to the Iranian players. 
you know, so this time losing, you know, I mean, it was probably very difficult. I know that some people were happy because they associated the players with the regime and thought the U.S. beating them. They celebrated that, you know, but I, I, I find it very hard to root toward the U.S. if they're playing anybody from Africa, Asia, you know, Middle East, Global South. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I don't really root for the, for the U. I mean, I might root for the U.S. against England. Maybe, yeah, but um, you know, uh, but that doesn't happen too often. Although it happened this World Cup, that was kind of interesting. Uh, unfortunately, they just drew, so nobody was really satisfied with that result. I think. Nope. I remember uh, the last time I probably rooted for a U.S. team was the 2012, like you know, the U.S. basketball team, men's basketball mm-hmm. team. That's probably the last time I cheered for a U.S. team. But yeah, I can't really do it anymore. I usually go for the other team. Yeah. Um, Especially like like in, in this Iran matchup, I was going for the Iran, yeah. um, you know, because all the geopolitics stuff, like it was a really interesting matchup. And even that group stage, that group was just interesting because of who's it in was. it, right? It was Iran, England, the U.S., and uh, Wales. So that yeah. was just an interesting thing when you, if you think about it politically. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I have this podcast too. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about these things. So the World Cup was a obviously it's a pretty good example of the intersection of sports and politics, just like the Olympics. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, we'll end it here. Uh, it was great to have you on. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So I'm well, glad you came so online. Oh, uh, it was um, a great anything, pleasure. It was really fun to talk with you, Miguel. Anything you want to say before we go? And, uh, talk no, about just the solidarity. podcast or something? Uh, please do check out the Mudgeless and Guerrilla History. Um, and, um, you know, I just really enjoyed this conversation and uh, admire your work. It's great to bring sports and politics together. And, um, you know, it was really fun talking about the World Cup with you. Thank you, Adnan. Again, that was Adnan Hussein, historian and director of the School of Religion at Queen's University. And again, like you said, check out his two podcasts. And I will uh, post that, that info in the uh, show notes when this podcast is out. Uh, thank you, Adnan, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That will wrap up the podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast.